Now, this is one that you've watched a lot. I mean, you like this one a lot, right? I do. Okay. Like, I like it a lot. I mean, as far as, like, the, I guess, the 50s bug movies go. Excellent. Wouldn't say it's as good as, you know, them, or, but I do yeah, like it. Yeah, yeah. It's, I can see you going either way with it, you know? It's either really, really cool, or, hmm. <laughs> but that's all right. We're going to give it a stew, so. Yeah. Well, I will get everything going here. Obviously, we're going to pimp Kaiju 101, and try to send some listeners your way so awesome yeah okay. i've got uh, another one in the pipe should be out next week sometime excellent i really dig it oh thank I you really dig it a lot it's uh and I, and I like the size it's a nice get in you do what you gotta do and you get out it's a nice i like it yeah i get a lot of people asking for it to be longer but i'm kind of happy in the 10 to 15 minutes per episode yeah i mean i think i think it works yeah i think rather than making it longer i would you know go weekly maybe put out a little bit more contact because i'm sort of at bi-weekly right now but right i was when i started the podcast i was surprised at how long <laughs> you know how long the prep time actually takes it's not just a matter of getting in front of the microphone and talking for 10 minutes it's yeah yeah hours of prep beforehand <laughs> and i don't know if this happened to you but the very first podcast that i did i thought oh i'm gonna sit down it's gonna go before about an hour or so yeah 10 minutes. 10 minutes. I'm like, yep. done. I'm like oh, yep. no. <laughs> <laughs> I was, yeah, a little discouraged. I put in hours and hours of reading articles and writing everything down, and then I sit down and record, and I'm done in less than 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it's content. You know, it's not necessarily length. It's content, so. Yeah. All right. Well, I think uh, yeah, my coffee's full, so. Likewise. about how one of the giant monsters works in one of the kaiju films that I love so much, I tune in to Kaiju 101. It's a podcast that takes a scientific look at the giant monster movies like Godzilla and Mothra and films like that. Well, it turns out that if I want to talk about a movie like The Deadly Mantis, I just need to talk to that podcast's producer, Andy Campbell. Now, at the very beginning of the show, you heard kind of the lead-up to the conversation that he and I are going to have about the 1957 film, The Deadly Mantis. And then you got to hear a little bit of the song Kanak Attack from the band The Volcanics that appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. With their permission, you can find out more about them over at thevolcanics.com or follow the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. Me, I'm your producer, writer, Derek M. Cook. want to welcome you to this week's episodes. I'm excited to talk about The Deadly Mantis, and I'm excited to welcome Andy to the show. I met Andy in person at a party thrown by the team behind the Kaiju cast, And ever since I talked to him, and he brought up a certain series of thin, orange-colored hardback books, each one focusing on a classic movie monster, well, I knew that I had to have him on the show. And we'll talk about those books later in our discussion. It might not turn up until the next episode, but it will be there. In this episode, we are focusing on the Deadly Mantis. We kind of bounce around the story a little bit. The plot, it's not overly in-depth. I mean, it's a giant monster movie about... Wait for it. A giant mantis. Instead of breaking down the plot beat by beat, story point by story point, we kind of go over the film in general, talk about some of the scientific accuracies and the accuracies to, well, Canada. And he's based up in Canada. And a lot of this movie takes place north of the American border. So I wanted to get his point of view on some of the things that we see 
in this film as well. I was a big fan of the movie, but you're going to hear about that later on in our discussion with Andy. Before we get to that, though, why don't we break down the basics here at Monster Kid Radio. You can find everything that you need to know about us over at our website at monsterkidradio.net. From there, you can click on the contact link and find our email address. It's monsterkidradio at gmail.com. You can also find our phone number. It's 503-4795-MKR. That's 503-4795657. That is a voicemail line. It's provided by Google Voice. It means it's got a three-minute limit, but if you have any comments for the show that you'd like to maybe hear on a future episode, call it in or drop me a line by email or create your own wave or MP3 file and email it to me. Also at our website, you can find links to our YouTube channel, our Live 365 channel, and our Flickr album. You can also find a link to our Facebook group where people are having conversations between episodes. We currently have 186 members in the Facebook group. Speaking of Facebook, we also have a Facebook page. Just look up facebook.com slash monsterkidradio. We currently have 277 likes. We're trying real hard to get to the 300 mark. A like is the currency of Facebook. So if you are a user of Facebook and you haven't already done so, I'm going to ask you to like us over there and help us hit that 300 like mark. Speaking of other goals... We have a 50 review challenge over in iTunes. If you use iTunes to download and listen to Monster Kid Radio, I'm going to ask you to give us an honest review. We get to 50 reviews. We launch a special Creature from the Black Lagoon spinoff cast here as part of the Monster Kid Radio Network. I've already got some content recorded, got some more content in mind, but I'm not going to pull the trigger on it until we get to 50 reviews. It's up to you guys and gals to help us make that happen. You know what you guys and gals also made happen? You got us on the ballot for the Rondo Awards. Over at RondoAward.com, you can find the ballot for this year's Rondo Hatton Classic Horror Awards. Monster Kid Radio is nominated for Best Multimedia Horror. That's category number 23. I'm going to ask you to go over there and check out the entire ballot and place your votes for every category that you can. You don't have to vote in every category, but you do want to take notes because the magazines, the articles, the movies, the DVD, and Blu-ray releases, you're going to find something that you missed last year, and you're going to want to add to your current collection now. So be ready to take notes, fill in your ballot, and email it to David Colton, the man behind the Rondo Awards. It's old school. Email him with your full name and just whatever categories you want to vote in. Send your votes to his email address, Taraco at AOL.com. That's T-A-R-A-C-O at AOL.com. Also want to point out that Christopher R. Mims' movie, The Giant Spider, is also on the ballot. It's category number nine in the category Best Independent Film. That's where my vote's going. Also, previous Monster Kid Radio guest, Dr. Gang Green, Larry Underwood, he's all over the ballot, so keep an eye out for his name. Bottom line, though, is just vote for your favorites. You have until May 5th at midnight to get your ballot to David by email only. I'd also be remiss if I did not mention that the other podcast that I get to be co-host with Scott Morris and Casey Criswell on, 1951 Down Place, the Hammer Films podcast, it was recently nominated for a Parsec Award. And that doesn't happen by itself. Somebody had to nominate us. So whoever it was, if you happen to listen to Monster Kid Radio, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. And Scott and Casey, I'm honored to be nominated for a Parsec with you two. Here in a couple of days... If you're in the Portland, Oregon area, you're going to find all sorts of Lovecraftian goodness at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival and Cthulhu Con. This is going to be a fun time. I'm going to have a blast there. I'm one of the guests alongside people like Sandy Peterson, the guy who created the Call of Cthulhu game. 
Joel Pulver, Willem Pugmire, a couple of writers that I really enjoy. Doug Bradley, the guy who played Pinhead from Hellraiser. This is going to be a great time. And to talk a little bit more about how much fun it is, I've got returning guest Ray Jelinek on deck to talk to us about his experiences at last year's Lovecraft Film Festival and what he's looking forward to this year. So you want to stay tuned for that as well. That's going to happen later in this episode after part one of our conversation with Andy Campbell about The Deadly Mantis right after this. White Zombie, a new novelization of the classic horror movie from award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, drive Through Fiction, and other quality outlets. Also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. Hammer Film Productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re-releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Downplace is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling, and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. A port city in the Canadian province of Ontario and Canada's 10th largest city. This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes and other information about these classic films. 1951 Downplace can be found in iTunes or their website www.1951downplace.com Oh, sorry, I thought you said Hamilton. 1951 Downplace, the home of Hammer Films discussion. I like my giant monster movies. I know my giant monster movies, but I don't know them nearly as well as this week's guest on Monster Kid Radio. He's been on the Kaiju cast. He produces his own podcast, the excellent Kaiju 101. Welcome to the show, Andy Campbell. Derek, how are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? I'm doing great. So we mentioned, or I mentioned... Kaiju 101, you're a fan of the Japanese giant monster movies. Yeah, oh yeah, all, all <laughs> giant monster movies, but I guess the focus of the show is the Japanese movies. And what you do with Kaiju 101 is completely different than what I've seen anybody do when it comes to these giant Japanese monster movies. You get into the science and the how they work. I sort of watch these movies and try and pick out little you know science lessons where I can, because that's my... My other passion is science, so I wanted to do something a little different with the with the podcast. So I uh, watch a, a Mothra movie, and I wonder, you know, where did the Mothra egg come from? And you know, that was my... <laughs> <laughs> well, when a mommy Mothra and a daddy Mothra really love each other. And sometimes you don't even need the daddy Mothra. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of my favorite episodes that you've done recently, or relatively recently, is when you talked about paint. Paint, yes, that was a bit of a stretch, but I, I think it worked. <laughs> hey, I thought it was good about how paint was used to kind of keep the stuff off the boat. It was just, go and check out Kaiju 101. It's Kaiju101.com? 
Kaiju101.com. Yep. We will make sure there's a link in the show notes for everybody to check out. Now, we're not talking about a Japanese giant monster movie, but it still is a giant monster movie this week on Monster Kid Radio, and it's one that you've mentioned to me in passing, and it's been a long time since I've watched it, so I decided we've got to talk about The Deadly Mantis from 1957. Where are the bodies? Easy. In all the kingdom of the living, there is no more deadly or voracious creature than the praying mantis. You think you'll be able to drive it out to sea? I hope so. Every device of military science, every defensive weapon, radar, planes, rockets, marshaled to destroy a thousand tons of beastly fury. A monster leading a trail of carnage. Spreading panic across a continent. Give the alert button. Yes, sir. Nothing in its path was safe. Not the planes in the sky. Not the ships at sea. Not the near. Or the vehicles on the ground. You boys might just as well go back. There aren't any bodies. And then this most dangerous monster that ever lived challenged the security of our city. This is a particular favorite of yours? It is, yeah. I love all of the giant monster movies have sort of a special place in my heart, but, you know, I was I was always really interested in bugs when I was a kid and even into university, so all the giant bug movies especially have a special place in my heart. They are fun. I'm a big fan of Tarantula myself, and I think I've talked about the Black Scorpion quite a bit. Which, Black Scorpion, I mean, yep. Yeah, they're, they're not exactly insects or more arachnids, but still, I think they count. Yeah, oh yeah. I count them. <laughs> Giant bug movies. We'll Giant bug movies, yeah, of course. And of course, them is like the granddaddy of them all, you know, the big it one. It is, yeah, definitely. Now, this one, The Deadly Mantis, came out in 1957, which was a few years after the Giant Bug boom happened here in the States. You know, Tarantula came out in 1955. I'd have to check the dates on them. But Deadly Mantis comes out a couple of years later, and it almost feels a little formulaic to me. It does. It, it definitely borrows a lot from them. I found. Oh, indeed. Them was, you know, the first half was almost like a mystery, what is causing these attacks, and Deadly Mantis definitely borrows a lot from that. Except there's not a heck of a lot of mystery because the title tells us what's going on. <laughs> they, yeah, they sort of give it away, but they try. <laughs> Which seemed to be how Universal did it. I mean, Tarantula was, well, it was about a tarantula. You know, there was really no big mystery there. Mm-hmm. At least you only, I don't know, you only had to wait like 20 minutes or so before the characters figured out it was a Deadly Mantis, but still. Yeah. <laughs> The mystery elements weren't nearly as uh, strongly played as they would be in something like Them. No. Yeah. And the human cast in <laughs> the human cast, the human <laughs> cast in Deadly Mantis. I really liked the the characters in this. Uh, Marge specifically stuck out for me. I mean, she's our female character, but she's not just the damsel in distress, which is something that I really like about a handful of these '50s monster movies. You don't have the traditional stereotypical woman. She's played by Alex Talton. She's a photographer. She's a go-getter. She's calling the general and making arrangements to go along for the ride. You know, she's there. I mean, she's a love interest, and she screams. Yeah. But she's still a strong female-type character in this movie, at least for the 50s. I really liked her. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I agree. When I was watching last night, I, I sort of remarked at 
definitely she's independent. I mean, she's middle-aged woman. She's unmarried. She's, you know, professional. Uh, she calls her own shots. Yes. I definitely I like that. Although, by the end of the movie, she is sort of, you know, the damsel in distress. But yeah, there, there's the time. A, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there is the one conversation they're having in the outpost about how are we going to find the deadly mantis? How are we going to find it? And she's right there at the window. If you just turned around and looked, you'd see it. <laughs> and then when she does, she does the screaming thing, which yeah, it, a lot of the women do in these movies. So I guess we're not quite there. <laughs> it's a, for the time, for the yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, which I really liked. Yeah, uh, definitely. And I thought she was well, I mean, well acted, well performed. I like her role. And what she did with it. So. Mm-hmm, definitely. Uh, but we talked about how she's a damsel in distress. There's a love interest, and that would be with uh, Joe Parkman. Colonel Joe Parkman. Colonel Joe Parkman. Craig Stevens. Yeah. So who was in uh, Abbott and Costello, Meet Jekyll and Hyde? Ah, which we have not talked about here on Monster Kid Radio yet. I need to get on Joe Stuber about that. We need to oh, get yeah. back to that. Yeah, he was good. I liked him in this. Mm-hmm, I, mean, yeah, they... I liked the three leads. Yeah, they were all good. The, the third being Ned Nedrick. Dr. Nedrick Jackson, played by William Hopper, who I thought was great. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I really liked him, although he was, uh, he was not a very good scientist, if you... <laughs> <laughs> well, and you Some of know. the things he said uh, had me rolling my eyes. <laughs> well, it's like what? When you first meet him and he's in the, uh, in the museum, and he, he tells the army guys that every known animal has a bony skeleton, which 90% of animals don't, but... <laughs> <laughs> and then he tells them... Even birds have bony skeletons, as though that's some sort of profound thing to say. Like, have they never eaten a, a chicken or a turkey? <laughs> but I digress. That's just nitpicking. <laughs> I, I learned a lot by watching this movie, thanks to Dr. Ned. Come on, oh. <laughs> One thing that I was taken by uh, with this cast and with this film is that Ned's a grown-up. Colonel Parkman's a grown-up. Marge is a grown-up. It's not something that you see in a lot of movies today. Mm-hmm. Because of where the movies are being targeted, the audience, the demographic is a much younger audience. I like that we have grown-ups in the lead here. Yeah. Which I suppose yeah. is kind of common for this time, now that I think about it. I mean, Tarantula, them, they're all adults doing grown-up things. It's not just a bunch of kids, which I kind of liked. Maybe it's because I'm no longer a kid. but <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a good point. There isn't. Although we do have some young military types who kind of ogle. Marge when she shows up at the base. Yeah, the the corporal, I guess. Or you never learn his name. He's just corporal. Yeah. But he's sort of you know boyish looking, and he's always got that sort of goofy look on his face. So I guess that's your child character. There you go. There you go. There's our in. It's the film is directed by Nathan Jaran, who is no stranger to big things on the screen. That's right. Uh, he did uh, Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman, Twenty Million Miles to Earth, and the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. With that's Ray right. Harryhausen. Yeah. Well, we've talked about some Ray Harryhausen films here on the show. I haven't talked about Attack of the 50-Foot Woman, but that's another film that kind of pushes the female role in these monster movies, which I really should talk about that one here soon. But yeah, no, Nathan Jaron, he's an Oscar winner. He's an Academy Award winner. Is he really? Yeah, for, I believe, art direction. Okay. Not for <laughs> not for 50-Foot Woman? No, not for 50-Foot <laughs> Woman. Oh, <laughs> you're robbed. I know, I know, right? <laughs> no, it was for best art direction for a movie called Whoa, How Green Was My Valley? As if nobody's heard of that. So <laughs> John Ford film. And then the other voice, the other person I want to mention about this movie, which I had totally forgotten until I'd watched this film and then the voice sounded really familiar, so I had to go back and double check. The narrator that opens the film, mm-hmm. voiced by Marvin Miller, who was probably better known as the voice of Robbie the Robot. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Oh, wow. See, so, yeah, when in the opening of the movie, I just assumed that was cut straight out of some like Cold War propaganda kind of thing. <laughs> I didn't know that. Oh, interesting. Yeah, the footage might have been. There was a lot of stock footage in this movie. A lot of filler. Oh, and yeah. For a movie that was only an hour and 18 minutes long. <laughs> well, I suppose you got to cut costs or something. You know, you're paying yeah. for that big model, so. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have footage from like 20 years ago from some movie you shot with a bunch of Eskimos or whatever, so yeah. <laughs> throw that in there for about 15 minutes. When I was rewatching it last night, the the first thing I did when I saw that is like that that looks like it's been cut from something else, and I oh, yeah. went to IMDb, and sure enough, it was <laughs> yeah from something from like 1933. So. SOS Iceberg, which I've never even heard of. It was uh, like a U.S. German production from the 30s. Oh, wow! Which, yeah, they were. <laughs> Even in World War II, they were still producing movies with the Nazis. Go figure. <laughs> wow. I've got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> they stopped doing it eventually. <laughs> I, I would imagine so. <laughs> well, this film, The Deadly Mantis, we talked about the opening, the narration, how it looks like it might have been pulled from some sort of propaganda piece. For every action, there is an opposite and equal reaction, and then the explosions. Yes. I'm not sure... If that was necessarily needed, I mean, I, I appreciate maybe telling us where the mantis came from, but yeah, I'm no physicist, but I'm I'm pretty sure that's not what every action. There's an equal opposite reaction. That's you know Newton's third law of motion. Right. I'm pretty sure it's not referring to you know volcanoes erupting in the South Pole affecting <laughs> things at the North Pole. <laughs> I mean, if a butterf- if a butterfly flaps its wings here, there's a car accident <laughs> in India, and then yeah. I don't know. <laughs> If a volcano erupts in the South Pole, uh, you know, glacier calves at the North Pole. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> well, you've you got to get the Deadly Mantis on screen right away, I suppose. You need it right off the bat. Got to get yeah. the monster in somehow. Since the characters don't know what's going on, we got to see it for the audience. Yeah. And we hear the narrator a couple of more times throughout the film, but I'd say maybe about half an hour and he stops. We don't really see him much anymore. No, after, yeah, <laughs> after he describes the, the phones at Conad. Oh, yeah, that's right. We were learning all about the radar fences and that these are the hot phones. You can reach Alaska in 15 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, technology. (laughs) I love that they had special phones for... (laughs) For Newfoundland. Yes. Just in case. (laughs) So you're up in Canada. I don't know if we mentioned that or not. So you're in Canada. Yes. Most of this movie, a big chunk of this movie, kind of features that Canadian radar fence line and all that. How accurate is all that that's you know? fairly accurate yeah yeah like the you know the canada line and the or the mid canada line and the dew line that's all accurate it's all still up there okay like a lot of the infrastructure that when they put in the dew line it's also there mm-hmm. so yes yeah i know that that's all accurate that was all legit okay yeah yeah <laughs> I, I which is know. why i yeah and that made me think even more that they just sort of spliced that out of some educational film yeah there's a lot of stock footage i mean with with, with the with the canadian uh, landscape the eskimos the airplanes the ground observer core or whatever it was and that was a legit thing they even got a shout out at the end a special thanks to that core i saw that yeah yeah so i suppose if the infrastructure is there let's make a monster movie around it Mm -hmm. Uh, the story from this i'm just now noticing this i suppose i should have done a little bit more prep william aland came up with a story for this and he was very involved in creature from the black lagoon so Oh, yeah. You know, which is my favorite film. So so I've, I've heard. Yeah, I think, I think everybody's just heard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this should be a Monster Kid Radio drinking game for every time I mention that film. <laughs> or Julie Adams. <laughs> hey, now. <sighs> I need a moment. Okay. 
<laughs> Understood. <laughs> so the deadly mantis breaks out of the ice cap and starts making its way almost due south right off the bat. I mean, it's mm-hmm. following, uh, it's going after heat, following the jet stream, the Gulf Stream, excuse me. And as it's making its way closer and closer to civilization, I mean, it's got to go through the observation camps, the little outposts here and there, taking people out, eating people because, well, it, it ate protein, it ate other insects, which we're going to learn later. In fact, I'd like to maybe comment on that now because you do have a science-y background. Science-y. That wasn't meant to sound. <laughs> science-y. <laughs> it is science-y. I'll, yes, I'll take that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> One thing that I like about these 50s monster movies, Creature does it, Tarantula does it, Black Scorpion does it. There's always that moment of science class. There's always that exposition yes. where we're going to learn about well, just about enough what we need to learn about to really get what's happening in the movie. You get the moment with the lungfish and creature and yeah. tarantula. There's everything going on about well, what the scientist is doing. There's a, a moment where Ned is doing the book learning, the book research, trying to figure out which bug this is. I felt it was handled pretty well for what these movies are doing. At this point, the film's kind of formulaic because they've been making these movies for a while, but it still didn't feel hitch over the head. What was your thought on how the science was exposed here, despite the fact that it was not very accurate? <laughs> it was, yeah, I think as far as leading us towards, you know, a, a mantis, I think it did an okay job. But yeah, this, it, the details were a little sketchy. Not so much with Nedrick, other than the thing I was talking about before, but the, the older professor, I think it was Dr. Gunther, when they were examining, you know, the big claw that they find. <laughs> it's as sharp as a needle. Sharp as it, a needle. It, it didn't look. <laughs> it didn't look. No. <laughs> and he said, you know, it's not from the neurological system, which neurological system just refers to our brains and nerves. You know, why would this five-foot hook come from that? Why would he think that? Well, he is a professor. He is? Yeah, well, yeah, who am I to argue <laughs> with Professor Gunther? Yeah, and I, I don't have any qualms with, you know, how it was handled. Per se, other than, you know, in the details. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, they get kind of the science wrong just a little bit. Yeah. Birds are a skeleton. I, okay. Yeah. <laughs> we already covered that. <laughs> we already covered that. And because we know the title of the movie, we know what the bug is, even though they spend a lot of time going through the books trying to figure it out. The path of logic that he, you know, this is, you know, a claw from, it looks like a grasshopper or a cricket. It's a big bug. What's a big carnivorous bug? Deadly mantis. Yeah, it's fair enough. That works. That works for me. Well, imagine it really small. Maybe that'll help you figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> and then he draws the picture on the notepad. Yes. <laughs> Very accurate. <laughs> that helps. Yes. Well, you know, Dr. Ned, he's thinking about the audience, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, poor Marge. She needs help. She's well, just a photographer. Well, she is a photographer. She's, yeah. I had forgotten when I sat down to watch this movie again, I had forgotten that they were not the two that had kind of coupled up. Mm-hmm. And I again, I'm going to come away from this movie kind of appreciating the relationship between the two, that it wasn't just assumed that they were a couple because they were a man and woman single working together. Yeah. So I did appreciate that. But yeah, so the Deadly Mantis, it's freed, it's coming down, it's eating people, the military doesn't know what's going on. And even though this is all happening in Canada, they're contacting scientists in Washington, or they know scientists in Washington they're going to bring into the project. Because mm-hmm. most of this, at least the first half of the movie, this all takes place in Canadian territory, doesn't it? Uh, Canadian territory or Greenland, it's not quite somewhere in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. 
But I'm Canadian, so I'll say Canada. Okay, you, we'll give you that. <laughs> I'll, I'll take ownership of this movie. <laughs> okay, okay. Are there no Canadian scientists to get involved? Or is Dr. Ned just the best in the field and he happens to know a guy who knows a guy? Well, he must be the best in the field because when the, you know, so they're walking through the reporters, the one shouts out, oh, that's Nedrick Jackson of the American Natural History Museum. He's like the most rock star paleontologist I've ever seen when he's just sort of recognized on the street. So he must be the best in the world. That's true. That's true. That's yeah. true. There is that moment. It's like, oh, why are you here? Well, I don't know. If you're here, that means... Uh-huh. A world-famous scientist, Nedrick Jackson, is here. <laughs> Something must be up. <laughs> Back to Canada. The only Canadian in this movie that takes largely in Canada uh, has a British accent. I was going to ask you about that as well. <laughs> I mean, I I know <laughs> there might be an accent. You know, if you wanted to go French-Canadian, you could go that route, I suppose. French-Canadian but... or, yeah, you know, the eastern canada you know the newfoundland accent right but uh, no that was no canadian accent i've ever heard this was a british guy on um, maybe he was on loan <laughs> possibly you know. from the uk he was kind of it was like an exchange program i don't yeah. know <laughs> and his job was to answer the phone yes and and to report in if he saw anything on the radar yeah to the americans yes <laughs> well the americans have dr ned the rock star paleontologist <laughs> and his photographer sidekick march <laughs> The destruction that this deadly mantis causes, it's very specific. It's opening up vehicles and eating the people inside. I don't think we actually saw that. We saw the aftermath. Mm-hmm. We saw the carnage, and there were no bodies whenever they found. Like, later on, we find a bus that it's picked up and smashed, but there are no bodies inside. Yeah, and they even tell the paramedics, you know, what are you guys doing here? There's no, no bodies. Can a mantis be that dexterous to do something like that? Not without leaving a big mess. If you've ever watched a you know, praying mantis in the movie, he has sort of like a you know, upper jaw and lower jaw like we do, and I guess it's implied that he's just you know, swallowing them whole. But mantises have sort of very delicate moving mouth parts, mandibles, and you know sideways cutting things and molars for chewing. They are voracious predators. I mean, little mantises will eat birds and turtles and such. Wow! But they would leave evidence, definitely. And would it be able to discern the well, I suppose it would be able to discern the difference between a soft, juicy human and a bus. Yes, yeah. It try to eat the metal or anything like that? No, no, I think it, it knows enough. You know. Okay. Well, one of the big clues that the scientists get is this big mandible we were kind of joking about earlier mm-hmm. with the needle point, which doesn't look very needly in the movie. <laughs> is that also common to have these pieces break off of a bug like that? Maybe. I don't see why not. Depending on, you know, where it's breaking off from, I think it's implied that it's, you know, one of the little toe, the toes or maybe one of the hooks in its forearms. Right. But yeah, no, I don't see why one of those wouldn't break off, especially if it's smashing through a hard metal airplane. That's what I was about to say. We are fighting metal. It's not like a mm-hmm. grasshopper in the wild is taking out a, you know, a car yeah. or something. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I suppose. Okay. Okay. That was one of the science questions I wanted to ask you because I know that's kind of where you come at these movies sometimes. We do eventually get the Deadly Mantis into a more populated area, and coincidentally, it also happens to go right through <laughs> the camp where everybody's staying. So Dr. Ned, Marge, Colonel Parkman, they all get to see the Deadly Mantis firsthand. I, I thought it was awfully coincidental that as the Mantis is making his way down, he goes through the camp. But in terms of what we need for the movie, <laughs> we do need that encounter. Yeah. And if it's flying you know, due south, you know, maybe... That camp happened to be due south of wherever he was before, and 
Saw lights on and thought there might be something tasty inside. Are they drawn to light? Not that I know of. Okay. They're bad flyers, mantises. They're very heavy insects, so they tend to pick their sight and just fly into a straight line until they hit it. Speaking of the flying mantis, you brought it up, and I wanted to mention it and then ask what your thought was on it. This thing looked really awkward in the air. It did. Even for a model, and maybe they're trying to make it look realistic, like what a real mantis looks like, but this thing looked really awkward, the way it was kind of weighted. Is that, and that's pretty representative, it sounds like, of how a real mantis would try to fly. Yeah. I mean, they are awkward flyers because they're so, they're, you know, very delicate up front and big, heavy weighted to the end. In the movie, it definitely looks sort of weird how it's sort of got its legs tucked in and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they have four wings. Was I saying that right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. And they make this horrible buzzing droning sound. It does. Is that just the beating of the wings that's making that noise, or? I suppose so. Because it does roar. <laughs> Which is the other big sound this thing makes. I've never heard a mantis scream at me like that, which is probably good. <laughs> well, you know, insects, they, they can't scream. Do they not have the vocal cords? <laughs> they don't, no. No, that's totally made up. Insects make noise by, you know, crickets, they'll rub their legs together or cicadas they beat their wings vibrate their wings to make noise but no 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 insect roars when something like this happens in a movie and i mean i know you watch a lot of godzilla movies so maybe asking whether or not the realism takes you out of it isn't fair but when something like that happens in a movie are you able to disassociate your science brain from the monster movie brain oh absolutely it doesn't bother me not like if it did you know i couldn't watch any movie really I would, you know, for that to bother me, you know, the giant monster itself would have to bother me, and I wouldn't watch these movies ever. That's like, how far do you take it? You're right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that stuff. I love the, the mantis roaring. That mm-hmm. I, I love it. But if it didn't roar, that would take away from the movie, I think. If it was just silent and crept up, I, I don't think that would work. I think it needs to roar. You know, now that I think about it, I don't think they make as much noise in something like Tarantula or the black scorpion. I mean, there's a little bit, it's an exaggerated bug sound, but in terms of screaming like that, yeah, this one might be relatively unique in that aspect. Yeah. Now, yeah. You, now you mentioned it. None of the other big bug movies, they make noises. Not like or that. Anymore. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they might no. make the exaggerated sound that a bug would make. Yeah. But no vocalizations like a, a roar. I would have to do some research on this, but this movie came out a couple of years after Godzilla. Do you think that might've, I mean, Godzilla King of the Monsters played in the States at this point, and it clearly roars. Could that have been something that was brought to the table by the Japanese? Yeah, it could be, because, yeah, King of the Monsters, the Raymond Burr one, came out in 56. Right. So just the previous year. So, yeah, maybe audiences would be expecting a giant monster to make that kind of noise. Well, that is something that I'm going to be curious about now. I'm going to have to go back and and do a little (laughs) bit of research and do a follow-up on There's probably a listener at home going, no, you don't understand. This is what, you know. (laughs) Yeah, if if I'm getting it wrong, shoot me an email at (laughs) monsterkidradio.gmail.com. Next weekend is the 2014 HP Lovecraft Film Festival and Cthulhu Con. I've been going... For years, I think since 2001 or 2002, I've gone every year, wouldn't miss it. It's my jam. It's what I do. But the guy that I have on the other end of Skype right now, last year was his first 
attendance of the festival, and I think he's going again this year. Ray Jelinek, how's it going, man? It's going good. I'm actually doing another three day. Are you doing all three days? Okay. Yes, I am. In fact, I'm I'm excited to see Hellraiser on the big screen Mm -hmm. um, because I have never seen it on the big screen. I have always watched it on cable or, you know, on DVD and now Blu-ray. And to see it now on the 60-foot screen the way it was intended is going to be amazing, especially with Doug Bradley being there. Doug Bradley's going to introduce the film at least once. Yes. And I will be there for the first showing, so I'm, I'm hoping he's introducing that one. My understanding is that he is. Yeah. That's opening the show Friday night. Now, this is happening April 11th, 12th, and 13th. Last year was the first year you did it. Yes. Obviously, you enjoyed yourself. You're coming back again. What was your initial thought? Do you remember when you went last year? I was overwhelmed. There was just so much to see, so many short films to watch. Of course, I mainly went for two. I mainly went for The Nightbreed Cabal Cut, and then I went for uh, Prince of Darkness. Oh, yeah. This one, I'm already freaking out because there are so many crossovers that I may miss a few of the things that I wanted to see, which is fine. I will just pick my top ones and go from there. Right. And then just spend some time in the short films like I did last year. Well, the short films are always a blast too, because Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of the features I go into this thing doing what I call the Netflix test. Mm -hmm. If I can get the movie on Netflix and it's not one that I'm dying to see and it's up against something else that I am dying to see, I, I let it go. Right. But this year. <laughs> this year, there's just so much going on. I mean, you've got, you know, you've got Lord of Tears. You've got Curse of the Crimson Altar, which oh, I yeah. believe you are hosting. Yeah, I'm going to introduce Curse of the Crimson Altar at least once, mm-hmm. if not both times it's playing. I will be recording it for a future episode of Monster Kid Radios. I was thinking about seeing Equinox. Oh, man. <laughs> but there are a couple of, like, I've been really, really waiting for this movie called Dead Shadows. Yeah. Which I had heard about uh, about a year and a half ago. And so this is the U.S. debut. And so I'm really, really excited about this. And then a couple of the panels look interesting, you know, the history and Lovecraft and, and things of that nature. There's just so much going on at this one. So, you know, everybody needs to get out. Oh, they do. Go to this. They do indeed. We need to pack this place. Yeah, this is being held at the Hollywood Theater yet again, which is wonderful. Thank you to the Hollywood for making that happen and letting us come in and take over your theater for all three days. We do literally take over the theater. It's the main screen downstairs and then the two screens upstairs. We pack it full of vendors and fans. And I always worry that I've never saved enough money (laughs) before the festival because you get up to that vendor area and wow. Yeah, you walk in there and go, okay, um, is there a close ATM? Because I'm going to blow it all right on this first pass. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, no, you can pick up DVDs and books. And it seems like over the years they've been really amping up their book presence, their author and literature presence, which is wonderful. That's always a good thing because it it seems like at festivals and whatnot, that seems to be the one thing you're lacking. You have plenty of vendors that have you know DVDs and and T-shirts. I mean, T-shirts seem to be everywhere. But to actually have books is, is a unique experience. So, yeah, I, I agree with you there. It's a good thing to have. You mentioned the panels. I would be remiss if I didn't say that I'm going to be on a panel mm-hmm. on Sunday at 4 p.m. 
I'm going to be in the EOD building, the Esoteric Order of Dagon building, which is a building that we're taking over as well. We've spilled out of the Hollywood and taking over a nearby building as well and, and calling it the EOD for the weekend. But I'm going to be on a panel called Monsters Seen and Unseen. We're going to talk about, well, monsters, and is it better to see them or not see them and that sort of thing. I'm going to be on this panel with Oren Gray, Alan Kazowski, D.H. Covey, Brandon Seifert, and Doug Bradley. Of course. <laughs> I wonder I if he's aware that he's going to be on a panel with me. I, I, you know, I'm a little nervous, but I hope he's doing okay. He may have to make another other arrangements you know, <laughs> once he finds that out, but I, th- I think he'll be all right. I, I myself, if I was on a panel with Doug Bradley, I probably would not be able to talk. Yeah, this one's going to be difficult for me, too, because I am such a fan of Hellraiser, and the man terrifies me. So, mm-hmm. you know, that'll be fun. And Brandon Seifert's the man behind the Witch Doctor comic, and he's also written a number of Hellraiser comics. He's a great guy. I've met him and have interviewed him for other things in the past. The whole thing's just going to be great. And I've never run into a situation where anybody here feels like they don't want to be there. They're always very appreciative. Exactly. I've met Stuart Gordon at previous festivals in the past, and he is just so approachable and so nice. I've never had a negative experience with anybody at the festival. So don't worry about being nervous or whatever. You know, go up and talk to these people. Tell them you like their work. They're very appreciative. It's such a fun time, too. It's at the Hollywood. It's a great theater. they got great popcorn and pizza. Mm-hmm. They do indeed. So, and they have good microbrews if you're into that as well. So There you go. There you go. Well, I hope that I get to see as many Monster Kid Radio listeners as possible at the festival. I'm going to have my recorder. I'm going to be doing the roving reporter bit all weekend. So if you're there and you see me, come up and say hi. I might put you on the show. If you don't know what I look like, I'm usually wearing a Hawaiian shirt, and I'm always looking like I'm having the most fun in the room. That's exactly right. (laughs) He is usually the most excited person in the area. Yes, yes. And Ray's going to be there as well, so drop by and say hi to Ray. Chris McMillan, who's been on the show before, various Monster Kid Radio crashes from the chat over Portland. He's going to be there. And most likely you'll see us pretty much in the same area. I'm yeah. sure we'll probably be moving in packs this weekend. Right. Right now, Chris is the bald guy in the kilt. Ray's just the bald guy. Yes, I am just the bald guy. <laughs> so you're able to differentiate me between you know, me and Chris. Yeah. Ray's the one wearing pants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And Derek, are you going to be wearing pants? or? You know, you... I have to whenever I go outside. There's that weird court order thing that happened. Uh, I guess I'm not allowed. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, Gwen and Brian Callahan put on a wonderful show. So if you see them as well, let them know they're doing a good job. They're usually the ones who look the most frazzled because they've been working so hard to make this happen. And tell them Monster Kid Radio sent you because, you know. It's always good to plug. That's right. Plug, plug. <laughs> see you at the festival, Ray. All right. Buy your tickets now for the Lovecraft Film Festival over at hpfilmfestival.com. If you haven't done so, there's a good chance that the days that you want to attend the festival are going to be sold out. you got to get over there, buy your ticket if you want to go and you want to see movies like Hellraiser and 35mm presented by Doug Bradley. If you want to see Equinox or Curse of the Crimson Altar, I'm introducing both showings of that film over the weekend. I'm going to be on a panel with Mr. Bradley and a few other folks. This is going to be a blast. I hope to see you there. And Get over to the website, hpfilmfestival.com. It's an easy-to-navigate website to find the schedule itself. While Ray and I were talking, well, we were a little wrong about when things were going to be happening, when things were being placed on the schedule, that sort of thing. Of course, the schedule is always subject to change, so make sure you keep up to date at the website or just show up at the festival. They're always good about putting up schedule changes on the whiteboard in the lobby at the Hollywood. 
I hope to see you back here at Monster Kid Radio in two days for episode 88, for part two of our discussion about the Deadly Mantis with Andy Campbell. You know, between now and then, you got to go over to kaiju101.com, and that's kaiju spelled out, and then 101.com, and check out Andy's podcast. He does some amazing work and takes a real scientific, scholarly approach to the giant Japanese monster movies that we love so much, and he just makes you love them even more when he starts talking about how these things just work, and he gets it. He's one of us. And he's smart, too. So go check that out between episodes. Come back here in a couple of days for episode 88, where you're going to hear another song from The Volcanics. Again, I appreciate them allowing us to play songs from their album, The Lonely One, here on Monster Kid Radio. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license that does not apply to the song Kanak Attack. Like I said, that belongs to the band The Volcanics. It appears on their album The Lonely One. You can find out more about them over at thevolcanics.com. Talk to you in a couple of days. (laughs) 